Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press one. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press two. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Catherine, tell us about the case. This is going to be an opportunity to explore the murder of 26 people who are worshipping inside of a church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. It's not actually one that I'd heard of before. It's a terrible situation that I think people across the country have heard of and sadly in some ways forgot, right? Which is why we have to keep talking about it. It was just after 11 in the morning, on a Sunday morning, November 2017. A 26-year-old man climbed from his car in the parking lot of this tiny First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, Texas. He had driven 35 miles from his home. And this is truly a southwestern sort of drive, what you think about Texas. It's lonely and long stretches of barren pavement between the towns. He was all geared up in dark clothing and he had brought a face mask. And by the time he arrived, he was in a bulletproof vest and he had two handguns and a semi-automatic rifle. He clearly was creating perhaps someone he wanted to become, along with the rifle and a handgun. He somewhere south of probably a thousand rounds of ammunition. A lot of damage can be done with a thousand rounds. Right. And so almost immediately, he comes from his car. He shoots at two people standing outside the church, and he continues to pull the trigger. And this is a very small church. He's hitting the side of the building over and over. It's Sunday. There's about 50 people or so at this church pretty routinely. And so the shooter enters through a side door and for 15 minutes, he fires indiscriminately walking up and down the aisle. Now, when he's done, nearly everyone inside has been affected. Um, Remember, I said they expected about 50 in the service. Well, here, 48 people were either killed or wounded. A lot of times we talk about numbers. I think numbers are so impersonal. So I went back and pulled this information because I want us to remember they're not numbers, they're people. So let me just provide you a little bit of a different view. Here's who was killed. A boy, one boy, seven little girls, one unborn baby, 10 women, and seven men. And those are just the people killed. Of those, nine of them were from one family, the visiting pastor. One victim was 77 years old. Of the people who were killed, six of them were married couples. There were three siblings killed. It's just senseless and so entirely heartbreaking. I can't get my head around how somebody can do that. And all in the space of 15 minutes, boom, and all those lives are taken. And it sounds to me like this is a proper rural little community as well. It's not a big town. Is it a farming community? Yeah, it's not far from San Antonio. So so certainly some work in the city. But it's very small, right? And the rest were farmers and people supporting that tiny community. The city really only had two churches, it had a general store, a post office. There was a community center and a historical museum that kind of supported their wavering population of anywhere from you know, three to 500 residents. So just a few streets, everybody knew everybody. You mentioned that there were 50 people expected to be in that church that day. And 48 people were either killed or wounded. So does that mean somebody escaped? Yeah, I think emotionally, no, of course. There were some who weren't hit, uh, some who suffered less injuries. 
but there weren't people who escaped out of the building in the way that you think of them. They're in church pews, and and he was walking up and down the aisle, and it's a very small church, and he just did what he did. That's utterly terrifying. How did it end? Let me tell you what happened that we think prompted the shooting to end. A woman who lives across the street from the church heard the shooting, and she alerted her father, who was taking a nap. So he stepped outside because he also thought he recognized the sound of gunfire. So he ran back inside. He opened his gun safe. He put together his own semi-automatic rifle, put on some pants, no shoes. He headed out the door. He only had so much ammunition with him, right? But he could hear the shooting. So for some reason, which he said afterwards, he didn't even know why, he yelled aloud, hey. And as he did that, he positioned himself behind a car across from the church. Wow. A good guy with a gun. And we've discussed good guy with a gun in the FedEx episode. Does that happen very often that the good guy with the gun actually is productive in these situations? Uh, No, it doesn't happen very often. This occurred around several very hotly contested political elections in the United States. And this was touted as a prime example of why guns are a good thing to have around. And I don't want to talk about the politics of it because I think that it's helpful to acknowledge that many people say good guy with a gun, but the evidence doesn't really bear it out. When we look at the shootings and our shootings stopped in this way, we know that many people who carry guns say they would step in. But when I look back over more than 20 years of these types of incidents, the cases just really aren't there. And people do want to help, but it's not really as easy as people think to be Mm -hmm. the good guy with the gun. It sounds like the cold, hard facts don't support the good guy with the gun in this situation. Think about what it takes in order to be successful. You have to have your weapon. You have to properly pull your weapon. You have to have it ready, loaded. You have to worry about having the right ammunition, not getting hit by the police if they respond. You have to worry about not hitting civilians while you are firing at somebody, innocent civilians. You really have to have the training and the ability to calmly and tactically hit your intended target. And that's tough for trained police. I spent 20 years with the FBI. I'm a skilled person with firearms. When your adrenaline is pumping, that is hard to do in the tunnel vision that we all know happens uh, when your adrenaline goes up. That's Mm -hmm. what happens to civilians. And if you're not trained in that, you can have the best of intentions. But, you know, notwithstanding this particular incident, it's a really hard thing to accomplish. You can be a good guy with a liability in your hand rather than a gun. Yeah, you should be trained or you shouldn't be carrying a gun and pulling it out in public. You just shouldn't. Uh, There's so many reasons why, right? And I know people who've done this have gotten themselves killed. In law enforcement, we have the saying, be a good witness. Think of a law enforcement officer who maybe has a weapon, but it's concealed and he walks into a bank and there's four bank robbers with guns. Is it wise for him to pull his gun out? No, probably not, right? He needs to be a good witness. A good witness is better than Mm -hmm. a dead good guy with a gun. But all of that aside, in this case, we had a very brave person who thought only of others when he chose to, to do this. Yeah. And so we've left him. He's run out of the house. He's got his gun. He's thrown on his pants, forgot his shoes, and he's heading across the road to the church. Right. I'm going to tell you this about this individual. This civilian is a firearms instructor. That bodes a lot better for him then, right? Right. But more than others, he knew exactly what the risks were, which is why he tucked behind the car immediately. His daughter, who was an adult, he sent her back into the house to load magazines. He wanted to get her out of harm's way. Very skilled. So enough training to try to stay focused, right? Got my fingers crossed that the good guy with the gun's going to actually pull through here against all odds. Well, that's true. But when he yells, we believe he may have prompted the shooter to come to the door. Either way, he did. And when the shooter comes to the door, when he sees the civilian across the way, the killer fires three pistol rounds towards the civilian, none of them hitting their mark. And the civilian returns fire A couple of rounds, he thinks, maybe to the chest area, a highly skilled shooter who actually had a scope on his gun, the kind that throws a red dot across the street. But the killer doesn't go down. So he's got a bulletproof vest on. Was that concealed under clothing? 
It wasn't the best come in many designs. I've had undercover big outward vests, the kind of military wear. They come in many designs and the civilian could eventually see that he had one on him as he was running. Okay. So presumably that's what stopped him. He's hit the target in the chest area, but that bulletproof vest has stopped him going down. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, definitely. Some evidence supports that. The killer drops his rifle. He runs to his car and the civilian fires again, this time hitting him in the leg and in the body, but in a location where he's not protected by his bulletproof vest. People think bulletproof vests are fantastic. But when I used to go and speak, especially with younger people who'd say, you're okay, you can do anything because you have a bulletproof vest. I pick my vest up and I'd hold it up in front of my shoulders. And I'd say, what is this vest not protecting? And inevitably they would say, it's not protecting your head. That's right. Bulletproof vests only get you so far. So the civilian managed to get around onto the shooter's body that was not protected by the vest. And the killer climbs into his truck and he takes off. And the civilian climbs into a passerby's truck. He sees somebody else from town who's driving in his truck through town and he waves him over and he climbs in the truck and he gives chase explaining what's going on and they call for emergency operators. They're trying to catch up. They're speeding like up to 95 miles an hour, they estimate, on these open country roads. This guy, he's turned into like Vin Diesel. He's chasing down the killer's car. It's like a movie. Yeah, it is a typical movie plot, but with much more scared people, right? Sure, um, but he's amazing, the, that guy. Yeah, exactly. Right, exactly. He couldn't affect what happened inside the church, but he definitely did his best to distract the shooter, and he put himself in harm's way. And so did the driver of that truck who let him jump in, right? So the driver said he right. thought that they were chasing maybe five to seven minutes. Sometimes mm-hmm. they were actually catching up to this killer's car, and then they'd lose a little ground, but they knew that the killer had been shot. And here's what we did learn afterwards, that he thought he was going to die. He called his wife. He called his parents. He told them what he did. He said he was sorry. But then when the cars were close to each other, the killer drove off the road, shot himself in the head, and died. This is just a case that real life is crazier than fiction, isn't it? You couldn't write this. No. I think that really often the real story is just a lot crazier and scarier when you can really dig up the facts. Let's back up the crazy train a little bit. Why did he target the church in particular? Was it random? Really, this is far away from anything random because it's pretty challenging to say random when this is out in the middle of nowhere. I'll tell you too, it may seem like this is a terrible hate crime, right? Maybe a religious hate crime somebody who went into the church and killed all these people. But the FBI, Texas Rangers, who were doing the investigation, determined that it had nothing to do with religion, nothing at all. Okay. It's just the location, right? Instead, mm-hmm. the most likely reason why this particular church and all of the people inside of it were nearly uh, killed or were wounded was because the shooter, he had a beef with his former mother-in-law and his ex-wife's family, and he knew that she and her family attended church there. Are you kidding? My God, that's infuriating, isn't it? There's nothing that you can say that would make me understand this, to be honest, but I'm hoping that you're going to be able to untangle it for me because that's just not a reason. It's just not. There, There is no reason good enough, but that is a pathetic reason. And I think when we talk about this killer and a little bit about where he is, you can see how I want to just say messed up he is, but that's such a non-clinical term, messed up. I can probably say that then. (laughs) He's f***ing messed up. Right, exactly. We know that his ex-wife's family went uh, to this church a lot. And five days before the shooting, the killer was at a fall festival at the church, five days before. So he was aware of the community. Now, was he scoping it out? We don't know, right? But on the day of the shooting, his ex-wife and her parents, they weren't even in church that day. So his ex-wife's grandmother was there and she was killed, but the parents weren't even there. Oh my gosh. I get tired of saying, wow, but wow, wow. I'm speechless on this one. I want to revisit something that we spoke about recently in the episode on the FedEx shooting. And that was episode nine. If you haven't listened, you introduced me there to a really chilling term and it was suicidal murder. Now, my understanding of suicidal murder is somebody that is suicidal, but has decided that they're going to take everybody down with them when they go. Have I understood that correctly? 
Yeah, that's certainly, that's the way I would define it. So is that what we're seeing here, do you think? I don't know that we can say that quite definitively. We do have a shooter who kills himself, and we know he had all kinds of trouble. We know that he talked about suicide. But I think this is the difficult part about quantifying and explaining things. We all want to know what happened. But when the shooter kills him or herself, which happens really in somewhat less than 50%, but somewhere between 30 and 40 5% of the time, when a killer kills themselves, then we don't have them to rely on to find out how can we stop this? How can we stop the next guy from doing it? Because we don't know exactly, was this just somebody who wanted to do that suicidal murder? Right. In your experience and your research working with the FBI and you've got behavioral teams that Mm -hmm. you can tap into. Yeah. Is there any way to understand this indiscriminate killing? Because these victims, they're just children, there's babies, there's families. I can't get my head around it. And I'm interested to know, how do you get your head around it? When we're working it, you know that we're the only ones to look at it afterwards. It's our job to do that, right? And there was outrage worldwide when all those children were killed at Sandy Hook because they were six-year-olds, babies. But one of the things that I think that we see pretty routinely is that killers just pull the trigger. And I think it's just indiscriminate. You use that word indiscriminate. I think you're right on. We rarely see a person who's an active shooter who thinks, I won't shoot this person. They're trying to kill as many as they can. Uh, They're not being discriminate about who they pull the trigger on. Think about our McDonald's shooting that we discussed, San Ysidro. If you haven't heard that episode, you should go back and listen to it. It's McDonald's. Who's inside of McDonald's? If these people are on the path, are they stoppable? When they've started pulling the trigger, have you seen in your research any cases that you can stop them mid-flow? No. I hate to be so definitive, but I can tell you that I know specifically instances where the middle school shooter, 12 years old, with a rifle, chose not to pull the trigger on some people the weapon was pointed at. And I do think that happens, but more often than not, surviving witnesses tell us that shooters may taunt other people who are there before they pull the trigger. And it's a power game. It's a power game for them. They see them, I think, less than human because they're convincing themselves this is what they want to do. And at some point they cross over that bridge of they're going to do this. And then it doesn't matter who they pull the trigger on. It's become abundantly clear that we need to prevent them getting to that spot in the first place where they're loaded up and ready to shoot. So let's talk about the weapons, because time and time again, we've seen killers in our series have legal access to the weapons that they use. Was this the case here? You're right. This shooting involved a lot of firepower. And after the shooting, police collected 15 empty 30-round magazines from the church. So that would put the number of rounds shot in the church someplace in the area of 450 rounds in Mm. less than 15 minutes. That's a lot of loading and unloading. So to your question, We learned he purchased four guns legally, though I hate to even share this with you, but I want to be honest. So he met all the criteria and more to have been prohibited from purchasing legally any guns or ammunition or even a bulletproof vest. It's just so frustrating to hear that because it's something that we've discussed in several previous episodes. You've got the system in the US called NICS, the National Instant Criminal background check system. I think I've got that right, have I? Yep, do. Okay. Which from my understanding, thank you, which from my understanding is supposed to be the fire break that stops putting weapons in people's hands that aren't fit. So it's not stopping everybody having guns. It's literally about saying this person's not in a right frame of mind or not judged to be safe to have a weapon either for themselves or for the community. But It's failed here again in this instant. How many cases have we actually done over this series? We've done 10 so far. I can count the FedEx shooting and the Navy Yard shooting, but I'm sure there's more, that the NICS system has not served its intended purpose. How many have I missed out? Because I'm sure there's more, right? No, there are more. You're right. It is a terrible situation. When we talk about what can we do differently, let's talk about that. There are challenges to this system, and I'm not saying it's a bad system, we should toss it out. I'm saying we should do a better job. We should do a better job with it. As an outsider, that's what I hear as well. I hear you've got a structure there, but it's voluntary, and the information only goes into the system voluntarily. But surely if you could frame that up to be compulsory, then actually 
I hate to say it because this is all in hindsight, but perhaps you might have stopped several of these incidents happening in the first place or making it so easy for them to have access to guns. They may have still got guns, but at least you've put a little fire break in there, right? Right. And, and that's really what stopping the killing is. Stopping the killing is creating fire breaks all along the way. It's not just about the gun. It's not just about a person who is suicidal. It's not just about a person who's mad at their boss because they get fired. It's all of those things. People reporting, the HR department having a good policy on hiring and firing, elementary school telling uh, the secondary school about troubles with an elementary school child so that child can be helped as their brain develops and they become a more stable member of society. So I know we've discussed this database before, but it's names and backgrounds of individuals barred under the law from buying weapons and ammunition. And there's a lot of instances where if somebody's reported to the next system, if you're a convicted felon, if you're adjudicated with certain mental health conditions, in, in this case, if you're somebody convicted of domestic abuse. Yeah. If that's there, he should have been in the next system. Yeah. And I think that in this case, this gentleman was in the military and the military and police departments are among those who have to develop policies and practices that do make it mandatory. It's voluntary from the federal government standpoint, but 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the country, the United States military, the largest employer in the country, right? We have a million and a half active duty plus civilians. So when something occurs, it needs to be reported. Law enforcement agencies, they don't have the manpower is what I'm saying, to sit down and fat finger in information about somebody who's a concern. Yeah. And, and right. there have been actually federal financial enhancements to send money to agencies, police departments to say, here's money to help you fund your efforts to enter things into the NICS system. But we just have to do better. Okay, so it's Sunday, January 19th. 19th. For nearly a year, my friend Aria dated men she met online. Lots of duds, disappointments, and some disasters. But then along came Mordecai, and Aria fell hard. I opened the door. There's a woman standing there, and she said, I think you know someone named Mordecai Horowitz? And I said, oh, you better come in. In 2019, a friend of mine fell for a sensitive millionaire named Mordecai. And then she found out she wasn't the only one. It was way too good to be true. I'm Kathleen Goldhar, the host of Do You Know Mordecai from USG Audio. Available now wherever you get your podcasts. So what struck you about this particular case, Catherine, as being the most significant piece of information that you would like the public to know? I know we talk about guns a lot, but I, I think what's really important is to have us and our listeners really turn away from this obsession about guns or no guns as the only discussion point. People who support their gun rights might feel they're being piled on. People who think all guns should be gone are very quick to say, see, see, guns. But what I say is if all you focus on are the guns, you're failing to see all the other things that you can do to stop the killing, right? That's the reason that I wrote a book called Stop the Killing. The book is not filled with stories about guns because there are so many other ways that we can prevent killings. But prevention is the key only if we try to help find these potential shooters before they strike, right? So this is the case where the reporting system failed, but this individual was able to purchase several guns. That's true. But let's talk about the other things that we know about this killer and what other ways we might have derailed him off that pathway to violence. Yeah. At the beginning of this series, I think I opened it by saying my point of view as an outsider from the US, just get rid of the bloody guns. And having done this series with you, my whole mindset has shifted and I understand that we have to work within the system that we've got. I'm glad to hear you say that. I know that there are many people who are anti-gun. I'm just going to say that. I'll put it in my little air quotes. It's just not about the guns. You've heard me say this before. People are dying because somebody's pulling the trigger. I get that. I get that. But what I've focused on, it's all the other things. And I think what you said just now is so essential is you have to work within the system that's there. We have more guns in the United States than we have people. So 
if your whole answer is get rid of all guns, then you're in a non-starter position. And I really respect the fact that you have come to recognize that it's a very complicated situation here in the United States, but Mm. not a hopeless one. It's just not a hopeless one. No, you've got the framework. You just need to tighten it up, I think. Exactly. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Maybe you just lost it. Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this. Tickets that not only look, but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game, or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift, or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. So let's look at the killer's background because these killers don't just spring out of nowhere. There is generally a pathway that gets them to this point, isn't there? Absolutely, right. This is targeted violence, not violence of opportunity. Targeted violence is planned. It means we can look and we can find signs and tells that this person is going to tip their hand about what their future conduct is going to be. Sometimes that's actual words out of their mouths. And sometimes it's signs that we can look for, just the same way with somebody who might want to commit suicide. You give all your possessions away. That's an outward, atypical sign. If you give all your possessions away, that person is under stress. Let's figure out why. Because if Mm -hmm. that person is going to commit suicide, that person might also commit suicidal murder. Yeah. We're going to take a look at the behaviors of concern that this complete waste of oxygen had in his background. (laughs) I can't think of any other way to say it. What can you tell me? Well, I I don't think that I'm going to make you like him more once I tell you some of the information in his background. It would be a mountain to climb. Yes. So this killer, I told you, he drove down from his house. He was born in the town where he lived the whole time. Uh, He went to school there. He had a kind of a rough high school and maybe no more rough than some people, right? But he was in trouble with the administration. He graduated on time, but while he was in school, he had his challenges. He went from high school to the U.S. Air Force. He married within a couple of years. His ex-wife, as it turns out now, had a toddler, right? So he had uh, her child. Within maybe just a few years, his kind of fragile ability to really handle his own troubles seemed to be ending. He's on a downhill, uncontrolled ride that just seemingly can only end in disaster. And we can see it based on some of these things. As a high school student, I told you he had been disciplined and suspended seven or eight times. He'd been suspended for things like cheating, disregarding rules, drug abuse, arguing with administration. Now in the military, see he goes from high school to the military, but in the military, when you sign up for a period of time, when bad things happen, you aren't just suspended for a few days like school, right? Mm. So the military has rules. It's an interesting choice that he was a rule breaker and then he decided to go to the military. It's a free education. It's, they say, three hots and a cot, right? You're fed and you're housed. And I think it is a choice for lots of great reasons. We have, you know, brilliant people in the U.S. military. So he goes in, but it's not high school. And when the military has rules and you break them, then you're brought up on charges in a military court. We call it court martial. Mm -hmm. Uh, So in fact, he has trouble right from 
nearly the get-go. He's charged with assaulting his wife and this child, demonstrating his level of anger that just seems to, to continue and his willingness to commit violence. For example, he held a, a gun to his wife's head once after she got a speeding ticket and asked her if she wanted to die. He not only mm. assaults his wife, he assaults the toddler to a point where the medical evaluation of the toddler says that it was so severe the child could have died. Was that his own child or was that a child from a previous relationship? Previous. Okay. Not that it makes any difference. It's still horrendous. Carry on. No, no problem. So the local sheriff's office has report after report. They're at his home more than a dozen times. In 2012, he's investigated, for instance, for sexual assault charges. That's at his home. But no charges or investigation follow-up was ever done on the case, according to the sheriff's office. But the military base has very strict rules about these charges. They file charges against him for assaulting his wife and the child. They, they have rules about no firearms on base. But still, he tries to bring weapons on base. He tells his co-workers that he's thinking about committing suicide, assaulting his chain of command. He makes death threats to his chain of command. After he hits and kicks his wife and this child, he's sentenced to a year in the military brig. And this is just two years after he graduates from high school. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of anger, a lot of anger in a young person. And a lot of people seeing it, right? Mm -hmm. His wife leaves him. He begins sending threats to his ex-wife's mother via social media. The mother is a member of the First Baptist Church in Sutherland Springs, right? So we learn later at some point, he tells his wife that he wants to commit a mass shooting at the Air Force Base where he's assigned. And there yeah. it is, folks. He's actually telegraphed it and said the words out loud that he wants to commit mass murder. Million dollar question is, though, did anyone report that? I don't think it was reported in the way that we would like it to have been reported, right? I do know that at one point, because of these threats, he is involuntarily put in a mental health facility. He briefly escapes that facility. The local sheriff has to go find him and they rearrest him, right? This involuntary hold means that they believe he's a danger to himself or others. And at that time, at some point in time, but no one can explain it later, there's a yellow flag actually put on his county records file that would indicate he has mental health problems. Right. Okay. So when he's discharged from the military, just a few years later in 2014, his duty title is actually prisoner and he's discharged for bad conduct, but he's not dishonorably discharged. And if his behavior up until that point is not dishonorable, what the heck is? Well, yeah, that's certainly a great thing to note on, right? First, who made that call? If he had been discharged dishonorably, immediately that would have been reported to the next system. But he was a prisoner as well. It's not like it was a slap on the hand. He was a prisoner. Yeah. I told you his wife left him. Mm. Just a few months before they discharged him, police are again back at his house investigating domestic abuse charges, these involving a new girlfriend who he eventually married. But you know what? The sheriff said in an interview after the shooting that they pretty much just thought this was teenage drama and a misunderstanding between the, the boyfriend and the girlfriend. Is this the same sheriff that's already been out to the house over a dozen times? Not the one when he was young, but certainly right. the one when he was in the military. The same sheriff's office. You're right. So it's and not their first rodeo going out. No, absolutely not. Well, they smoke this fire, right? Indeed. Sometimes the law enforcement are in a bad position often. They get called to someplace, but there really isn't a criminal charge they can file. But domestic abuse is a uh, charge that could be filed more often than it is. But I'll tell you, I used to be a prosecutor in Chicago. And when I prosecuted domestic abuse cases, many times, the most difficult part was that my witness, most often female, the woman who was being beaten, would beg me to drop the charges. So it's difficult for law enforcement from that perspective. Right. Let me tell you one other thing. When you think about somebody and the troubles they're having, he was in a motorcycle accident and he was in what others referred to as constant pain with his back and his neck. So remember you asked me about suicide. Maybe that was part of it. That when we go back and we put stuff together, they scoped his social media entries, for instance, and his social medias, he would comment on his pain and that he's not getting any treatment. And that even in the day of the shooting, he posted these words, I'm a wreck. One yeah. of the women that he had worked with in the military, he communicated with even after he got out. She even said after the fact, he often joked about wanting to kill somebody 
and he was fascinated with mass murder. Again, we see that leakage, don't we? That leakage of information, that little breadcrumb trail. Right. I, I love that you and our listeners are getting familiar with that term because leakage is our best way. That's our best way, right? After he was discharged, she continued to communicate with him via social media. And she said he told her he would buy dogs on Craigslist so he could shoot them. Oh, my God. He admired these infamous killers. He admired, for example, this terrible shooter who (sighs) killed all these people at this church in South Carolina not long before. Such a big red flag right there, isn't it? Absolutely. In the Columbine episode, you said something that really resonated with me, and it was if you ever hear a young person or person talking about Columbine, you should immediately leave your hesitation at the door and call someone. It doesn't have to be Columbine by the looks of it. It's anybody referencing that admiration for a mass shooter. Yeah, absolutely. When you ha- say the words aloud that you are admiring another killer, that is a huge warning sign because I can guarantee you that if you're admiring another killer, that means you've done some research, you've looked it up, maybe you've written some things about it, and there are things that are resonating with you in a very unfortunate and broken way that need to be tended to, right? Needed mm-hmm. to be tended to. Yeah. Literally, a chill just went down my spine when you said that. Yeah, I know. That's, it's a very frightening situation. But I do think that kind of violence it doesn't just come out of nowhere. Oftentimes, I, I know that I mentioned the thing about the dogs. He was charged with animal cruelty for, imagine this, for punching a dog. He was chasing a dog down a street. Neighbors saw him punching and kicking uh, this dog, pushing him in the, punching him in the chest. He eventually picked the dog up by the neck, threw him to the ground, and then dragged oh. him back to his house. The levels of extreme and consistent violence they're actually quite shocking, aren't they, in this case? Yeah, they are. And uh, animal cruelty is very much mm-hmm. a precursor that we've seen before right. in killers, serial killers, other types of killers, where they test out whether they have the moxie in their mind to do it. It's a way that they can express their anger or commit violence without having to face a person or uh, trying to decide what to do and get that feeling that they get. It's a real nightmare for people who work in the behavioral sciences world. I will say, during this time, he passed a Texas Department of Public Safety background check a few times. Mm. Then these jobs that he either quit or he was fired, he worked as an unarmed night security officer at a local water park and at a chain grocery store. And at the time of the shooting, he was actually on the paid staff as a security guard for Summit Vacation and RV Resort near his family's land in Texas. A job he secured five weeks before passing a background check. Background check, I'm using in air quotes, because that seems like a pretty shallow background check by the sounds of it. What were they looking at? Just his picture? I'm sure that the Texas Department of Public Safety people would be not happy to have that conversation, but I think that maybe background checks and the NICS checks are all wrapped together. Yeah, for sure. Through terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events, on our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there.
Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I know that we're looking with hindsight goggles on, so we've got the benefit of seeing all the pieces of the puzzle, and I get that. But this killer's history, it really seems to scream out that he was on a pathway to violence. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And I think the hard part in this case is there were so many visuals along the way. Mm. And who was was putting those together? Exactly. I mean, it's such a suite of behaviors of concern that we're seeing, like the astonishing level of violence, he's harming animals, he's fractured a toddler's head. And I mean... The alarm bells have got to be ringing now. Then we've got this whole involuntary mental health hold, which surely that would have been scooped up by the system. It's good that he got scooped up in the mental health system, but then they dropped him again. Right. Well, that didn't get into the NICS system. Right? Yeah. And, and that didn't get into the NICS system. And that's a terrible situation that allowed him to purchase guns. But he was on that pathway long before he bought a weapon. Yeah. But the involuntary mental health hold, that's strike number one against NICS, should have been entered and prevented him from getting legal access to a weapon. But then we've got strike number two. He's discharged, but not dishonorably. Right. Even though he's got a military criminal record, that's when the next system could have again swung into action, but it didn't because, again, it's voluntary. Right. This is part of what I consider garbage in, garbage out, right? If this information's not in the system, it doesn't matter. No one's putting it all together. There are a lot of behaviors of concern here. If I was going to list them, these are the ones that I picked up on. So All right, let's test, test your metal here. Test me out. See yeah. if I'm getting any better at spotting them. So repeated acts of violence, abuse of animals, Check. leakage of intent to commit harm to others, the admiration of mass murderers, and finally, the foreshadowing comments that he made threatening to commit a mass murder at the Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico. And that violence was escalating. The fact that there was violence against the animals, violence against the toddler, violence against the girlfriends and the wives, that escalating violence. And in some ways, think about it, no repercussions. He does a year in the brig, but the violence continues and no indication that he's getting mental health care. He's involuntarily committed. He escapes. What kind of care was he getting when he left the military, right? What kind of Mm -hmm. care was he under? while he was at the military? And would that have helped? What kind of care, if we step back, was he getting in high school? In high Mm -hmm. school. Yeah, for sure. I think your list is good. Okay. And half of that list, I wouldn't have been able to tell you. In episode one, I can tell you that much. Next season, we're going to make our uh, audience pull all of those out for us. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And will I become like an honorary FBI agent? Um, I'll get you a badge. um, Plastic ones that that we give kids. Yeah, that's about the grade that I should be given too, to be fair. In all of your research and experience, was there a moment with this killer that could have derailed him from his horrific, murderous plans before he even got to the church, do you think? I think, uh, obviously, the gun situation is its own situation. But when I look at the situation where he's discharged from the military, He's committed all kinds of violence in his own neighborhood and community during the time that he's in the military. Then he's discharged, and then there's literally no one overseeing him. There's no mechanism to see that this person who has become so violent, now he's just living with another person and being violent with them. And I think that's the hardest part for me is when we talk about derailing, maybe if there was a different system in place in terms of a more intense uh, way that we could provide mental health care to people who are struggling, 
when he was released from the military, there were just no guardrails, no guardrails available. Do you have any sort of feeling around whether it was because of his mental health uh, issues or do you have the feeling that it was because he was this, what you like to term, grievance collector, somebody that was just picking up all of these troubles and adding them to Mm -hmm. his pile and then taking them to heart? Yeah. I don't know that I would pop him into the grievance collector category. Uh, There wasn't as much evidence that everybody was out to get him. And I think it was just more the latter. It was the anger. You know, he had very clear anger issues and he was unable to deal with them. The anger, it displayed from a very young age and he continued to just outwardly project it to, to other people, right? He fought with his high school administrators and teachers and classmates and Then he moved on and fought with people in the military. He just didn't really bond with people in a positive way. He just continued to be angry. What do you think could have stopped the anger? Let me go back to uh, a term that you used a couple of episodes ago, threat management. Was there something that could have perhaps wrapped him and given him the support that he needed, like anger management, so he wasn't going to be a danger in the community? Right. No, I'm glad you asked me that because the U.S. military was a pioneer in terms of threat management. When we talk about all these behaviors of concern, ideally people report them to a threat assessment team. Their job is to assess the threats based on all the facts that come to them and then to try to manage that person and the threat so that they develop a plan for the individual who is under stress and under duress. And the military has it, but once you discharge somebody, there's nobody managing that threat. There's nobody right. managing those behaviors of concern. It sounds like this case was almost like the the perfect storm of all things awful. So mm-hmm. what were the lessons that we can take away from it? Though there are very differing opinions on gun rights in the United States, there is nearly universal consensus that there are a lot of people who should not have access to a gun based on certain circumstances, mental health, domestic abuse, criminal convictions, particular uh, drug situations. That's the hard lesson. We have a system, but it's voluntary and it's not really being used the right way. Let's bookend the show as we do with trying to look at those moments of bravery and, and resilience and courage. And I have to say, this episode actually has got somebody who would give James Bond a run for his money when it comes to courage and bravery. That civilian, give that man a medal. So what is the moment that you've picked out? I would never want to forget the person who let him jump in the car and follow, right? So that was this duo. Mm -hmm. But let me tell you something about that civilian. Literally everybody in this tiny town of a few hundred people had a friend or a family member killed or wounded. Literally everybody. But remember I said the town had two churches? The man who lived across the street from this church, he belonged to the other church. And afterwards, he felt so bonded with the community that he actually joined the Baptist church. That's the humanity of it. So it's really positive. What a beautiful human. We can wrap things up with your final message for us today. We have a system in place, this NICS system. Do your job. Pentagon has guidelines requiring reporting for NICS. Follow the protocol. Get the information in. Law enforcement has the ability to take information about county mental health holds, put it into the NICS system. My frustration over all these deaths and yelling on behalf of the people who are killed and wounded down in Sutherland Springs is, do your job. Just do your job. That's all we're asking you to do. Put the information in the system. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. 
This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And you'll find us on Facebook and Instagram at Stop the Killing Stories or Twitter at STK Podcast. Come and join the conversation. We'd love to hear from you. All the links are in the show notes. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. Hello? Hello? It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen, and it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chabacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to do a service for me play the godfather now at chabacasino.com welcome to the family no purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, I'm Sean McCabe. And I'm Carrie McCabe. We are, well, married, obviously, <laughs> but we're also obsessed with the darker side of things. True crime stories, alien abductions, poltergeists. If it leaves you scratching your head and keeping those lights on at night, we want to hear about it. That's why we host the podcast, Ain't It Scary, with Sean and Carrie. Every week, we bring our listeners a true story guaranteed to send chills down your spine, from history's most brutal serial killers to the mystery of spontaneous human combustion. Yep, lots of these stories leave unanswered questions behind, and you'll get to poke through the rubble of the evidence with a hardened skeptic and... Someone whose mind is more open to fun. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> you can find Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie wherever you get your podcasts, and on social media at Ain't It Scary. Come play with us. 